I can do things in wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the magical world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail with us on a voyage of storytelling and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and rocking the boat with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where's the river taking us today, Mel? Well, Freddie, it's a privilege today to dig into a, a great conversation we had with my good buddy, Mark Eads, one of Disney's second generation Imagineers who uh, helped bring Epcot to life back in the 80s. Uh, he cut his teeth in Disney animation and film and was called up to Imagineering by Marty Sklar to manage production of Epcot's uh, film-based attractions, uh, including uh, Circle Vision, American Journey, Star Tours, Muppet Vision 3D. He really kind of started uh, this entire theme park production studios um, for the parks. He went, later on uh, went to become uh, the theme park guy for the Orange County Register, covering stories from all of Southern California, uh, as well as uh, U.S. world-class attractions. That's awesome. Yeah, this is really cool for me. I've enjoyed more than one of Mark's favorite drinks with him, the Disneyland Manhattan at Steakhouse 55. Listening to stories from the genesis of many of my favorites, uh, and although this was a dry interview, <laughs> Mark's stories Reportedly. Still, yeah, reportedly. Mark's stories still fit the bill. All right, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and leg inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. So, Mel, how did you meet Mark Eads first? Do you remember? Well, um, while he was over at Orange County Register, he reached out to me and actually uh, suggested that we probably should get together and have a drink or <laughs> break bread at least. Um, and I thought that was really gracious of him. I had been uh, reading uh, his stuff for years and uh, following him. And uh, it was great to finally get together and swap stories and, you know, talk about shared friendships and relationships. And uh, since then... Um, you know, he's just been uh, almost like an extension of our team. I mean, we're we're really excited about some uh, upcoming creative collaborations. We've uh, signed some mutual NDAs of some uh, uh, projects that we've both got on the back burner. So we're we're excited at uh, not just kind of the historical friendship here that uh, has been built up over the last few years, but uh, of kind of the next chapter and some stuff we got we're going to get to work on together. Yeah, and because he's uh, he's been around a while, uh, he brings a lot of experience uh, to uh, to what we do and um, and what you the projects you get to work on. So, um, I a lot of what Mark had done was in film and uh, creating films for theme parks. And most people don't really think of film as a major part of their theme park experience, but it's probably the single most flexible an important element for uh, creating quality attractions. Um, so many of what we, uh, the attractions that we see today have some sort of film-based or projection-based um, element to it, even the VR, that's all film. So I um, wanted to think this through with you. What's so compelling about filmmaking, the kind that Mark was part of, that makes themed attractions so much fun? Um, creating film for themes, for theme parks, 
What's so important about that? Yeah, well, as a film major, uh, <laughs> you know, really, we understand that uh, whether you're talking about his film or really media, yeah. um, uh, digital storytelling, uh, it, again, it's um, on the one hand, it is this unique collective storytelling medium yeah. like themed entertainment design and spatial storytelling. Um, but again, specifically that aspect of uh, not everything has to be built out with bricks and mortar that uh, you can augment that. Um, it, it's kind of a bummer when you completely replace it yeah. with uh, just a two-dimensional uh, uh, digital or filmic uh, situation. But when you when you augment that uh, in some of the very best examples and, and from an environmental perspective, I think of rides like the Navi River yeah, right. uh, journey that uh, our friend Mike Schwalm worked on, um, that that really just t- adds an extra layer of depth and, and immersion and, and flexibility and yeah. updatability. Uh, and again, so it's, it's kind of a, a balancing act between kind of being overly reliant uh, when you're, especially when you're translating uh, movie-based IPs and film yeah, products. It's really it's, it kind of is a knee-jerk that. thing to, hey, let's just throw some motion seats and, you yeah. know, and uh, a, a kind of a, a sequel, you know, on a two-dimensional screen. But when you go beyond that, um, it, it, there's some pretty unique hybrids and combinations yeah. that are just now, I think, kind of... Um, being explored to their potential. And it's not just a magic bean or a magic pill that like sort of, uh, oh, well, we'll just throw some film in here. It really has to be thought through and, and done in a great way. Uh, well, uh, we've got a lot of river to cover today because uh, with Mark, we can talk for a while. So let's shove off to the Blue Sky Loft at Storyland Studios with our guest for today, Mark Eads. Well, we're here at Storyland with a good friend and another uh, Imagineering alumni, my buddy Mark Eads. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you for having me. It's really exciting to have you in here. We've uh, um, kind of built a relationship over the last year, uh, going around, hanging out uh, at the parks and uh, learning a little bit from you. I mean, uh, it's really cool to uh, have read a lot of uh, what you've done, both on your website and in the Orange County Register and other things. I mean, you've you've really sort of followed a career um, with deep, deep themed entertainment industry insight. Isn't that true? Yeah, I would say so in in that I've had two careers, both uh, as an Imagineer and designing other theme park attractions for Universal and Warner Brothers. And then I went into journalism and eventually ended up covering Disney and theme parks for, uh, gosh, eight plus years. And I'm still doing some freelance stuff. So it's kind of a I get to see it from both sides that a lot of people don't really get to. Most people who cover theme parks, they're the outside looking in, so That's they have right. to deal with what they're fed to a certain extent, mm-hmm. and it's hard to get away from that veneer. And being on the inside and actually having helped create some groundbreaking attractions at their time. So I think I have a unique perspective that most people don't. And it's been fun on the covering it side as a journalist and that the the parks have been a lot more open to me than they have to others and allowed me to do. Yeah. I I haven't seen any really good behind the scenes stories like I was doing that were in depth. So it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I mean, you, you, you blazed the trail that we're trying to catch up on, you know, the idea of applying that uh, brain damage you incurred at Disney and the insider knowledge, like you said, leveraging some of those relationships and, 
and friendships and, and really kind of having just a, a unique perspective on the industry. So I kind of almost see the conversation as kind of two parts, kind of your, your, um, your, a little bit of your backstory and history and, and kind of in the, in the game, if you will, uh, in the creative sandbox of uh, Imagineering and elsewhere. And then uh, I really can't wait to pick your brain on kind of that unique zoomed out a higher level perspective that you've gleaned over the last decade plus of just the, the overall industry where it's been and where it's going so yeah I'm so I, about this. I want to I want to dig in first let's like let's let's talk about the first uh, themed attraction that you got to work on tell us how you got into the into that a little bit and then we'll uh, leap forward through the eons well oddly enough uh, you know I came to wed which is now known as Walt Disney Imagineering in uh, the fall of 82 after Epcot opened. I had been working on Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland on all the films for the parks as a post-production supervisor for a couple of years of very long hours, which anybody in the business can recognize. Uh, the first shot uh, for those uh, folks that don't know, opening day Epcot, there were a lot of a lot of films, <laughs> a lot of media. There were 120, I don't remember the exact number anymore, Production. film projectors wow. that needed film on them. Now, some of them were like Circle Vision, so there's nine, uh, et cetera. But that included what we refer to as ride loops. They were all done with film back yeah, then. Right. Now they do them with digital projectors. And uh, if you went through the world of motion, there were, I think, about 18 film projectors in that ride, uh, not counting the first floor. Um, Spaceship Earth had five, believe it or not, including the Roman chariot scene, uh, which you didn't know was a film because it was a projected image of a... Roman on a riding a chariot down a blacklight street. <laughs> it was really kind of cool, um, you know, to Magic Journeys, to the Land Pavilion. I mean, they all had just about every pavilion had some kind of projected media in it. And if it was film based, it came from the studios. So that was my issue to deal with. And then I came to WED and I had to deal with the production side. But the first attraction that I actually started that had not started yet. Uh, was when we did American Journeys for Disneyland. Yeah. And that started in the fall of 83. And then we opened in the summer of 84. Actually, it started in the summer of 83. And we opened in the uh, summer of 84. So that was the first attraction that I actually was the show producer from the beginning of, okay, we're going to redo a new Circle Vision film for Disneyland to replace America the Beautiful to the end. Yeah, kind of a, a daunting challenge to replace, a, again, a, a classic, I mean, yeah. almost from park opening. What was fortunate was uh, we hired Rick Harper, who had directed the France film, which is still running. <laughs> Unbelievably. <laughs> Not a frame change. Yeah. Uh, still wonderful. Love those blue Oh, bottoms. it's a wonderful film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, but he was hired to direct the film because we had to have... Uh, Four seasons, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall. We had to have a second unit, so Jeff Blythe actually directed some of the second unit stuff. And we didn't really have a script, so it was just go out and here was a shot list and get shots the best you can, and then we'll sort of figure it out. And actually, when we got to the Christmas of 83, uh, Randy and I sat down and looked at what we had and said, okay, we, we need to kind of stop for a week or so and let's figure out what this film's going to be and so we brought Rick home and 
had big meetings and actually created huge storyboards by taking clips out of the scenes that had been shot and they figured out the script. And out of that, Rick knew what he was going to have to shoot and we had to bring Jeff Blythe back in to shoot four more shots, three of which ended up in the film. Wow. So it was nice to, you know, let's figure things out before we start filming, guys. It's a concept. Uh, But, you know, it was documentary style. So uh, Well, you... Casually mentioned Randy. Uh, we we probably should pause and, and oh, talk about Randy. Randy Bright, Randy Bright was. Um, I first met him working on the Epcot project at the studio. He was the executive producer for all the films, and um, he for some reason noticed me and what I was doing and the chaos of getting all these films done, and uh, eventually approached me to do more and asked, well, what would it take to get you to do more and to get, you know, well, raise. And um, <laughs> Let's start there. Yeah. And I got, you know, at the time I got a decent raise. Um, and then what was the next thing? And I said, well, you know, when Epcot's done, I'm probably going to be out of a job uh, here at the studio. Um, maybe I could come to WED. And he agreed. And shook hands on it outside the restrooms on the west end of what is the Mary Poppins stage now. And that was it. Nothing in writing. Glad it wasn't inside the restroom. Right. Um, (laughs) Well, we'd gone outside because he didn't want others to hear the conversation. And you you clearly washed your hands and dried them. Yeah, yes. But um, what was ironic was I ended up having to hand carry the only print we had of Magic Journeys, the 3D film, five days before opening. And had to take the red eye. I had two first-class tickets, one for me and one for the two cans of 70-millimeter film. <laughs> and it was not a direct flight. They didn't have them back then, so you had to go through Atlanta. There, you haven't lived till you've carried two very big cans of 70-millimeter film through the Atlanta airport. I'd like to have God carry that film next time. <laughs> and then um, got it installed. And then uh, the next day, I had my wife fly down with our oldest kid, newborn. He'd been born in July, and they were there for the opening of Epcot. And I had to go around and take a look at how things were and weren't working and what fixes we need to do on all the different films and videos. And, of course, I was now going to inherit the Horizons Pavilion production. Um, But on the day I was supposed to leave, I I had a message from the WED field office that Marty and Randy wanted to meet with me at a certain time because they knew when I was going to leave. Remember, there's no cell phones back then. Yeah, right. So we met in the hallway of Communicore outside uh, what was the show called a Studer Computer Review. And it was pretty much by October 4th known we were going to have to redo that show because it, well, sucked. Um, (laughs) And um, don't don't hide your feelings, Mark. Well, it just wasn't, it wasn't just me. <laughs> everybody everybody was saying it was not a good show right. about how computers worked. And um, so we met in the hallway. Here's Marty and Randy right on time because they knew I had to take a plane home. We talked about some of the things that needed fixed around the place that were in my bailiwick. And after that conversation, uh, I looked at them and I said, I guess I'm a wet employee now, right? And Randy said, yes, it's all set up. See so-and-so in professional staffing. They're setting it up as a transfer. Nothing in writing. I never said another thing about it from that moment almost a year and three months prior. And they remembered and honored the commitment and brought me to WED. Wow. Yeah, it's a different different world. (laughs) That's how things worked then. (laughs) So, gosh, we did a Studer computer review almost simultaneous to we we did we did that as called Backstage Magic, and Rick Rothschild headed that up with Scott Hennessy as the writer. And uh, 
we shot it as video that we transferred to film. And then we did uh, American Journeys, which was from scratch. So that included a pre-show film. PSA was the sponsor. So the pre-show film was all because man wanted to fly. You can look it up. It's out there on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> and uh, I remember the summer that opened. And I remember, yeah, PSA Airlines. Yeah. You know, they, they sponsored both Disney stuff and SeaWorld stuff. But What was funny about PSA was they were really hot on the fact that they were the first airline to have stewardesses in mini skirts. So they, we had I remember a, that, too. They had a photo <laughs> display of all the different stewardess costumes over the years. And it was like, oh, what oh that's you know? right. That's right. And, and people were, like, looking at that. And it was like, look, if that. Randy said, if that's what they want, they're the sponsor. Let them have that wall. Think of that as the selling point. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, they were giving us $12 million. So, you know. Entirely different. And, and remember, at that time, we were coming down slowly uh, Horizons. So the place was going through a lot of layoffs. And after Horizons, it was really going through layoffs. And American Journeys. Kind of post-Epcot. Yeah. And American Journeys was the only actual funded project after. Uh, yeah, so... There were quite a few Imagineers wanting to be a part of a project that they didn't need to be on. We had yeah. we had no special effects. It's kind of right in that transition yeah. from kind of the Ron Miller yeah. uh, kind of old and, regime and to So it was interesting. But, you know, during that phase, Randy had me research simulators, which eventually led to Star Tours. Yeah, so, well, you know, a nice little attraction there. Yeah, but it was oh. fun. I just researched simulators just for the heck of it because yeah, they told it, me to. Were, were there simulators around to... To see, I mean, you didn't have Google. You had to go see no, these things firsthand. F- you had to do a lot of research. Um, I went and flew an F sixteen, the real one, not a simulator. No, a simulator. Okay, one. <laughs> uh, we went down. I went. It was arranged. Somebody knew someone at the Marine Corps Air Station in Tustin, and they had a sim. You know, they're training simulators. They were used for training pilots and stuff. Yeah. And um, I ended up trying to fly a helicopter. Yeah. Um, I'm not good at it. It <laughs> took me five times to get the thing to finally get in the air. And when I got it in the air, I took it to 10,000 feet, you know, artificially. and said, well, now you need to land it. You need to start coming down. Here, let's let's help you. And zip, all of a sudden, I'm 100 feet off the deck. I can't <laughs> land a helicopter. Every time, I would have killed people. And they kept re- uh, That's why they have simulators. Yeah. And... Uh, Went to um, a facility General Electric had, uh, which was in Daytona Beach at the time, where they were doing a tank training simulator. Wow. And uh, But out of that wrote a memo. They were memos back then. A memorandum of understanding. Yeah, but it was a memo <laughs> to and from. I wish I'd have kept copies of it. Um, but I was really big on not sneaking stuff out, unlike a lot of Imagineers. And... Um, the memo basically said how we could use the simulator, and it really came down to two. There were two paths to follow. A, admit it's a simulator, put it in Tomorrowland, and it's a flight training simulator. Everybody's going to get to go on board, and there'll be a glitch in the system, and things go wrong. Instead of just a normal training flight, you do all kinds of crazy right, things. Right. Or B, some kind of other adventure, and we were all hot on Star Tour, Star Wars, and said, wouldn't it be cool if we could take a ride on the Millennium Falcon, and then when we get off, we'd get disgorged into the most Eisley Cantina, and here it is, 2019, and what finally. are they finally yeah. doing? They're, they're making that, that cantina for you. Finally bringing that memo to life. <laughs> yeah, but there's a memo to Randy and Marty about it That's from great. way back in 1984, somewhere in their yeah. files. Well, I've been 
been wanting to do that at least since 1984. If yeah. Not, yeah. If not, so Flying that Millennium awesome. Falcon. So, yeah. Then we did Star Tours after we went through the management upheaval and they brought in George. And there was, when I had written the memo, I had solicited ideas from Imagineering and had like 60 some odd one-liner things, many of which involved the Star Wars universe. So that became kind of a starting point. So I'm, I'm learning uh, as we're doing the podcast that we have kids listening that in some cases, maybe not to this podcast, don't even realize that Walt Disney was actually a dude. Uh, and <laughs> George, was a real. <laughs> George Lucas, pre-Disney pre purchase, there was a guy that, that yeah, we, wrote and directed the original Star Wars named George Yeah, Lucas. he was very involved in the original Star Wars. We, we had a big meeting once we, Michael Eisner had gotten him on board in the contract. There was a big blue sky session and we sculled out all kinds of ideas but out of that came the basic storyline that the original star tours had it was an 11 minute show so we knew we had to make some judicious edits but uh, mm -hmm. it, that's what it was yeah. and that's what it became and of course since it was an 11 minute show we thought well we'll do another film every year or every couple of years and we'll go to some of the other planets and we never did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it had all the potential but it, yeah but the thing had it a was line. working. Well, that's the thing is that when an attraction at Disney has a line, why touch it? Right. Is right. sort of the attitude from a financial standpoint. I understand it, and the technology at the time could not handle it very well. We were talking about American Journeys earlier, and Randy had the idea that we would show two different films during the day, and we did. We set it up. We would show Wonders of China in the morning at Disneyland, and in the afternoon and evening it would be American Journeys. But that involved about a 40-minute downtime while you change the show out. So it's it was more challenging with real film versus now when it's all digital. You just push a button. There it is. Well, I'll never forget uh, my first experience going through. I actually had a, a, a family friend that was a recent Vietnamese refugee. Uh, and to just kind of have just landed in America mm -hmm. and to, to, to step into that story. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's the same level of excitement or, you know, that people are going to be feeling in a few months when Star Wars uh, Galaxy's Edge opens up. But again, to step into probably one of the first uh, act scene one pre-show immersive. Uh, immersive cues, really, uh, where you're literally just stepping into that Star Wars world. Um, that was a powerful thing in and of itself, and to to walk right in and see C three PO and R two D two live, uh, and then playing bumper cars on, in the asteroids. I mean, it was really a pretty. I mean, I again viscerally remember that first time. I it really was an immersive. Instead of just a pre show, it was an immersive. We wanted you to suspend disbelief. I mean, yeah. And and it really helps suspend it. Yeah, you know. I don't know if it's credited with that, but I I, I don't know if there was a, a pre-show as uh, you know immersive as that. I think, but I think like you're right. I think if, or, if you, know. you really step back from it, it really kind of was the first immersive cue. There have been cues behind the turnstile, like the mine train and the log ride at Nosberry Farm, right, where they yeah. hid them. But there's not much show yeah, value. You got to air conditioning. You got you know yeah. show set. You know. Yeah. But here, yeah, you had the, the you know the fake commercials. Um, the you were being you as the guests were being set up as a character doing something. I am going to travel to the stars, and that that was unusual. And we had the same mentality, too, about, well, the simulator itself, which was the Star Speeder. Yeah. It was a Star Speeder 3000 then. <laughs> uh, 
was a character, just like the Millennium Falcon mm-hmm. is in the movies. Mm-hmm. It had to have some character. And the pilot ended up, we wanted to have the pilot be a real character. Finding the voice was a challenge because I was the casting director at the time. <laughs> and eventually we got Paul Rubens, who was P.B. Herman, to be the voice. And Horrible impersonation. I'm looking forward to Galaxy's Edge because I, I, I haven't had it confirmed yet, but I'm, I suspect they bought Paul in to do uh, the super. DJ version, right. the, the, which I think would be cool. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> so. I want to I bounce back to something. Um, okay. I was at Epcot's 35th uh, anniversary that uh, October 1st, just a couple years ago. And um, I remembered that when I worked at Disneyland a long, long time ago, I worked there the summer that it was the 35th anniversary of Disneyland. So I was there for the 35th of Disneyland, now at the 35th of Epcot. But when I, while I was standing there watching the show at Epcot, I remembered the 35th show that they were. Not a long uh, time ago. Yeah, but, but here's, <laughs> here's who was there. It was Art Linkletter and Ronald Reagan were on the stage. Yeah. And, and so then I, I flashed forward and thought, oh, so did, these folks who built Epcot, these designers who were all part of that, they're now at that age where um, this thing this thing has legs, it has age, and they're at a certain age. And so I know that you were part of sort of a um, a collection of bringing all the, the the band back together, bringing all the um, opening crew. And I just wanted to kind of hear from you on that because those are the um, now the elder statesmen yeah. um, that uh, we're losing bit by bit, and just we, some we, of that. Yeah, we a few of us started. Talking about it back in 2015, uh, Debbie Del Mar and I have been been friends for a long time, and uh, we started talking about wouldn't it be neat if we, the idea came up that maybe we should have a little get together of some kind. And Disney in the modern age really doesn't do anything for the people that worked on it. They don't. Um, and it eventually grew to where yeah, let's have a reunion for everybody, and um, we really wanted to do it at Wed and. Bob Weiss gave us permission, but of course we had to pay for everything. So Disney contributed no money. Um, you know, it was not cheap, uh, but everybody was allowed to bring a second person, a spouse or significant other or whatever. And it was really neat. We all got together and uh, didn't necessarily recognize some people. <laughs> uh, you know, when you, I had left Disney in 93, so there were people I had not seen uh, in quite a few years. And and like I know the voice, <laughs> <laughs> I know the memo. <laughs> yeah, and it's but it was really neat, and we had a wonderful time. And the other thing we did out of that is there's a very very private book that we put together. Mm-hmm. There's only 350 copies, 360 copies. I have three. Oh. Um, we decided thought it would be neat to put together like a scrapbook, and it became essentially a professionally printed book. But we asked everybody for photos they might have taken. Now, remember, this is back in the film days, and you weren't allowed to have cameras necessarily. Uh, You didn't have cell phones or smartphones. So it was a little challenging to get some photos of uh, some of the stuff. Um, We did get some. Actually, on site, uh, there were a few people that brought cameras and took some photos. And uh, we used a lot of them for a lot of the site stuff. And then we had people... uh, Robert O, uh, John Robert O. Drury, he drew some stuff and he art directed it. Jerry Schneider helped get photos and put some photos in. And Jim Mulder helped lay out the book. Terry Dyer did the uh, proofreading of everything. And I 
function as sort of a writer editor, and uh, Debbie managed it. Well, I've got to ask you. I mean, this is a little maybe off direct topic, but um, you know, I, I remember around that Epcot 35, there was there was a lot of conversation about just thinking through the legacy of mm-hmm. uh, of Epcot Center and what that park meant to the world, to the industry. I'd love to just get your take on that. I mean, especially with this kind of band of brothers. Well, what's interesting about Epcot, if you really look at it in terms of the theme park business, um, Disney really was the only game in town at the time. Universal was thinking about a Florida park, and but obviously they had their park out here. But Disney was basically it. Well, after Epcot finished and there was nothing else to do. At, at its peak, there were 2,700 people employed at Wet Enterprises, plus some people at the studio, et cetera. There's no work. <laughs> Nobody's going to get paid. So all of a sudden, you have a lot of people with a lot of different practical expertise looking to do. And I, I think Epcot was the foundation and birthplace of the business of themed entertainment because Mm -hmm. all those people went out. There were some companies that were outside that provided things like scenics and helped provide some of the physical special effects stuff and things like that. But now all of a sudden, these people have expertise. Now you have a themed entertainment industry. You had an industry. There wasn't as a lot of work back then. It was very lean for a few years, but it provided the foundation. And a lot of the people who worked on Epcot became very well-known names. Mark Fuller with Wet Enterprises. I mean, he left Disney, the Bellagio Fountains, et cetera, but that came out of stuff that he helped formulate for Epcot. And just go down the line, Technifex got things, you know, just all these different companies. people have really found those niches of kind of taking Imagineering out to the real world, you know, from museums. Don Iwerks, who was at Studio Machine Shop, he left and formed a company, Iwerks Entertainment, that did, you know, simulator-type projects for (laughs) Dave and Busters and others. And a lot of those companies still exist or have been folded into others, and that became the business. And as themed entertainment, as a business beyond just creating these things has grown like Bob Rogers. It's all of a sudden museums got more theming and Bob Rogers who had done work for Epcot formed his own company and BRC Imagination Arts. It's still around and Bob's still there and they do museum projects and things like that. Corporate showcase stuff. Corporate showcases. He he basically went off, formed his own company because they wanted him to take care of the General Motors first floor and (laughs) that became his business. And that's that's what's happened over since 1982. Yeah, you guys wouldn't be here. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever actually counted the the number of uh, organizations and companies uh, that are kind of uh, Disney alumni spawned. Sort of an explosion. I mean, that's yeah. uh, yeah. And as I think, what Epcot showed others was that museums don't need to be boring. Um, At times, I think the museums go a little too over the edge of making it more like a theme park. They blurred the lines for sure. It blurred the lines, which was fine. Um, And some of the stuff was pretty hokey. Um, I know I kept being asked when I left Disney to do more and more 3D and simulator shows, which would just make the chair move more, make it in your face all the time. And I would try to explain to them, well, the reason great 3D works is you don't always have great 3D 100% of the time. And the reason a good simulation show works is you're not just bouncing them around all the time. And I didn't do a lot of projects because I didn't want to cheapen myself. So, hmm. <laughs> Well, when I think of uh, theatrical productions um, with uh, Wed and Imagineering, uh, another mutual friend and 
collaborator has been uh, Rick Rothschild, and yeah. he's kind of uh, he's gone out and done some great stuff. I know he's in Iceland right now, filming yeah. his latest. He just kind finished of soaring over Iceland. <laughs> no, he, he posted uh, two days ago. He rapped. <laughs> well, yeah, I can't wait to ride that one. And um, but yeah, I mean, tell us about the collaboration with Rick. Uh, Rick was. Um, it, some people view Rick as a hard-nosed guy, but he's really passionate, and he wants the best, and he'll push the envelope. Um, American Adventure was an example of pushing the envelope, because here we have a 70-millimeter film that's being blown up an ungodly amount of times, and he used to bellyache about, we'd get jiggle. Well, yeah, you're taking something that has a tolerance of four one-thousandths of an inch, and you're blowing it up. So four one-thousandths of an inch blown up to something that's 70 feet wide, it's going to show. You yeah, know? Yeah. So, I mean, we were – but at the same time, he pushed people to do their best. And anytime he was on a project, it really turned out great. Uh, and there were some that got killed because it's like, nope, can't do that. Um, he wanted to do a Russia Pavilion idea, and it would have had a film screen almost twice the size of American Adventure with one film projector. <laughs> and that's when I actually got out the date on film tolerance, and I said, "Rick, this is not going to work. <laughs> Here's why, <laughs> you know." And uh, and it got modified. Of course, it didn't happen, so whatever. But Rick's Rick when he left Disney. He, what's odd was he just left Disney and then boom, Michael Jackson died and he had to come back and help bring Captain Eel back right. in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, those, yeah, world events. Yeah. World events changed and it was really fun because I'd started covering Disney at the register and I'd been doing a little bit and here they're going to bring Captain Eel back and they had the big media thing and I've got to interview Rick Rothschild. Okay, this is going to be strange. <laughs> and um, talked to the editors at the register at the time and they said, well, yeah, as long as we somehow admit you worked on it. I said, okay. So I did it as a video interview, and I went up, hey, Rick, hey, Mark. Well, you and I both worked on this attraction. <laughs> and Rick goes, yeah, I've got some of your memos still. <laughs> That's really fun. And so it was really kind of like a circular thing. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they are felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit StorylandStudios.com or call now. 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. So talk about that a little bit. So you went on to then um, become a journalist, uh, writing about the very things that uh, that uh, you'd been doing uh, in the industry. And they're, they're, that gives you a unique perspective to share with the audience or yeah, the readers. Yeah, you know, I went into journalism in 97 after I 
the themed industry in '97 uh, was not doing well. That's when the Asian financial bubble had popped, and mm. there was no work. And I'd actually started and between Disney and that. You had a chance to yeah. Work I worked with some on several projects. I did. I worked on the T2 3D attraction for Universal. Right. Help. Uh, basically, I proved the concept of work, built a mock-up with six 70-millimeter projectors. Still going in Japan, I think. It's still there. It's <laughs> closed like the in the States now. Collections. Uh, <laughs> yes. Right. It's, it's, uh, I did some consulting on the EFX show for MGM Grand, yeah, that was the, the first one. That opened, they wanted yeah. to do some 3D and stuff. It didn't It didn't have the legs, but uh, and then I went to Warner Brothers and did some stuff for there, and I uh, wrote the story and the, co-wrote the script and produced uh, Marvin the Martian in the Third Dimension. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Canine, <laughs> disintegrate that Earth creature immediately! <laughs> and, the um, P-94 space U-38 Imodium disintegrator! <laughs> and, and, and I got to where I could kind of talk like the character yeah, you have yeah, every yeah. sentence he says you have to almost run out of breath at the end <laughs> disintegrate <door. laughs> um, i could never talk like daffy though yeah which uh, which other parks did that make it into uh it was initially uh destined for warner brothers movie world in germany mm. and that's where it went and it was also going into australia and then they decided to put it into their warner brothers store that they had on fifth avenue in new york so we put it in there that store is now gone wow. Um, big expansion trying to turn a, a store into a mini theme park, I guess. But we put it in there. And then after I left, eventually it ended up being um, licensed to iWorks Entertainment. And they put it into the Adventure Dome up in oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Vegas at Circus, the Circus Circus. Circus. Yeah. Mm. And then it's the only themed park attraction that I actually have gotten a few residual checks for. Not because you're allowed any, but because they took pieces of it and put it in videos that they sold in Europe. And under the in the European world, the writers get a part of that by law. Mm. And I didn't know this. All of a sudden, I get a letter from the Writers Guild of America West saying, are you so-and-so who did this and this? And I called the number and said, yes, why? Well, we've got some money for you. Really? <laughs> why? You know, well, since so and such time, we've been collecting all this data, and you know, you're entitled to some residuals based upon what they use. So they sent me this 18-page document that said, well, it had been used. 1.3 seconds had been used in this thing. You know, it was really wild accounting. And <laughs> my first check I got for them had been for a period of years. So it was like $200. And then, then then since they knew where I was, they'd send me a check every year until the time runs out. You get it for so many years. Yeah. And the last check I got was two years ago was for $24. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting choice. That I'm it's glad you Marvin. didn't have to do the work to, to collect yeah, all the money. My goodness. Yeah, that's right. Interesting choice that it's Marvin the Martian as a uh, character choice. And I, I think that there's rich story within that, but you think it's going to be Bugs Bunny and well, Daffy Duck? Well, I, I was brought in to consult, Ryan Harmon actually has suggested me to them. And I came in and they'd written like 12 scripts from their Warner Brother animation folks, which were all doing the TV animation. They had Pinky and the Brain and the, oh, right. all those crazy things on air, which were great dialogue heavy animated things. Um, and I loved watching them, but none of the stuff seemed like it would work in a 3D environment. Yeah. yeah, they had pretty much decided they wanted to use Marvin the Martian, but they couldn't figure out what to do. Mm. And so I came in, and they we talked for a while, and then they I was given a consultant contract initially, and. I read all the scripts, and I'm like scratching my head trying to figure out. And I said, well, let me play with this a little bit. 
And then I asked the same question you are. Well, we need a foil for Marvin. And based upon the history, how about Bugs Bunny? They did not want to do Bugs Bunny in 3D at that time. Mm. So I did a little bit more thinking, and I said, well, how about Duck Dodgers? Yeah. And they said, okay, that's not a bad idea. Play with that. Okay. And I went off, and then I came back a week and a half later, and I had a story written, a treatment, uh, that was sort of a spoof on um, the Edgar Rice Burroughs story, Princess of Mars. Yeah. And so there was going to be a princess of Mars, and she wanted to be in this great 4D Martian extravaganza, and she needed a star. So she charged Marvin with finding a star, and she thought Duck Dodgers would be perfect. As we went through the iterations, the princess character got expunged, and it became more like the classic yeah. Marvin searching the universe for signs of anti-Martian activity, and he happens upon Duck Dodgers saying he's going to blow up <laughs> Mars. Of course, it turns out Duck Dodgers is Daffy making a really low-budget sci-fi <laughs> right, in right. some shed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's about all it took. And it Sounds uh, like a Tim Allen movie. It was it was fun to do, 12 minutes at $12 million. It was about a million dollars a minute when all was said and done. But wow. we were, at the time, we were doing taking classic cartoon characters, turning them into a 3D animation, but we didn't want them to look like plastic like others had. We wanted to have the edge, the black line, and all that around them. And it was tough, and we had several studios involved, but we got it done, and it turned out great. And uh, it was really fun. The guy who was the big, uh, Richard, the guy who was doing all the Carl Stalling sound-alike for all the cartoons at Warner Brother Animation, uh, you know, wanted him to do the the music, and so he met with me as we were going through the budget and said, okay, I, I've really got this down to a lean budget. And I said, no, you don't understand. This isn't TV. You need more. And he goes, I've never had a producer tell me to add more people to the orchestra. <laughs> 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 hey, so, that's a rarity. They get, yeah. they, they, if they're willing to pay for it. Yeah, well, I just, I know, you know, just experience, you know that a 20-piece orchestra doesn't sound that great when you're in a big 400, 500-seat theater with, you know, seven, eight sound tracks around it. And uh, so I said, no, you need more like a 70 to 80-piece orchestra because, hey, volume helps. So that's what he did. <laughs> that, and then in 97, thing after I left Warner Brothers, I took six months off. I literally took a self-imposed, non-paid vacation, had a another kid coming, my fifth, and... Uh, when I started to go look into the work, I, during that time, I actually started occasionally going down to the Orange County News Channel, and my sister was working there, and I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. It's a 24-hour news cycle, and I was intrigued by it, so I started working there part-time. And then uh, right after I came off my self-imposed six-month time off, I'd been talking to Landmark, and they had me sign a deal memo. That's basically you agree to do something if the deal if the money comes through. Right. And I was going to do uh, something for a theme park in Korea through Landmark that was going to be based on the Aliens franchise, and it was very similar to T2-3D. <laughs> and two weeks after I signed the deal memo, of course, the Asian financial bubble popped in there, just no work. I mean, mm. guys were moving back into their parents' houses. Yeah. And uh, But I stayed on at the Orange County News Channel, went full-time, and I, I decided, you know, I like this. And... Uh, so 20 years, two decades later of covering <laughs> yeah. the industry. Um, yeah. I, I, you're, uh, you know, when you, when you talk big picture, you know, zoom out of the individual stories, um, how would you characterize those, those last two decades of 
what you've seen, uh, good, bad, and ugly. Oh man! Well, you're in news, so you see a lot of ugly. Yeah. Um, you know, four years uh, at the Orange County News Channel, which was a 24-hour cable news service in Orange County, and uh, I actually took a leave for a while to do one more themed entertainment project where I was I wrote the script for the Daytona Dream Lapse simulator film for the Daytona Racing Museum, um, but. Um, they ended up losing money and, uh, oddly enough, shot, shut down. The last broadcast was uh, at 11.30 p.m. September 8th, 2001. Mm. Mm. So, you know, out of, out of work. Three yeah. days later, we all know what happened. So it was a tough 2002 at the Eads house. Mm. But I... Um, the Orange County News Channel was in the Register Building, and I'd gotten to know a lot of people there, and I, you know, I love news. So I started freelancing for them, and eventually went on staff. My first beat was actually Coda to Casa, in the canyons, and uh, you live close yeah, to there, so don't you? By where I live, yeah. Yeah, I, I have the Housewives of Orange County. They, they uh, started while I was. <laughs> I, they started while I was covering Coto. Uh, I still have Gina Keo's number on my cell. Yeah, uh, some unique wildlife down yeah, in those canyons. <laughs> the Coto de Casa I call the Disney World of HOAs, <laughs> and the people wonder about that. I said, well, it's kind of like a Disneyland in a larger sense. It's surrounded by a berm, mountains, right? It takes a ticket to get in. You can't just drive in there, right? It has themed lands because of the way it was developed. Different areas have different looks to it. It has castles, (laughs) uh, big big mansions. Uh, It has all the the glory and plasticity of Orange County. We'll get to that because it has recreation, golf, tennis, swimming, hiking, all that fun stuff. And it definitely has characters, many of <laughs> many of whom have more plastic in them than the Disney characters. <laughs> and then in '09, um, the management, you know, they knew my background, and uh, Disney was not being something that they they wanted to cover Disney more, but they was just standard coverage, and uh, so they thought, well, let's, you know, and I was complaining because I was. I lived in Buena Park, which is North Orange County, and I was having to drive out there every day, and gas prices were suddenly jumping in 09 a lot. And um, I'm going, I'm I'm not making enough money here, folks. We need to do something. And they didn't want to particularly give me a raise. I said, well, i got to cut my costs. So they decided, uh, a guy by the name of Chris Meyer, let's move him to Anaheim and uh, let him cover Disney once in a while. There were some that protested, and my attitude was, as long as you're open about it. And so in... The fall of 2009, I moved to the North Bureau and started covering Disney and theme parks. And originally, they just said Disney. And I said, you know, there's another theme park in Orange County. It's called Knott's Berry Farm. Mm -hmm. And then I convinced them, said, we need to cover things that relate to Disney, the business and related things. And we should be covering Legoland and SeaWorld. And so slowly that started. I, I just started doing it. And their attitude was just go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the first time I went to cover a Disney story was the big press conference when they were going to announce all the changes they were going to do to California Adventure. Yep, DCA 2.0. Yeah, and so I was also doing video news because we were trying to say, hey, it's the internet, we need to do all this. So there were three people sent, the writer, a photographer, who's now the chief photographer at Disneyland, Josh Sudock, and myself to shoot video of this. So we go over, and it was the first time with the Disneyland folks. And I didn't really know the PR people at Disneyland at the time. John McClintock had started about a year and a half before I left Disney, so I didn't know him. So they didn't know me, Mm. you know, from whatever. And we go walking in, 
I'm carrying a tripod with a video camera and my equipment. And it was held around the swimming pool at uh, the Grand Californian. And who do I see first but Bob Weiss. Bob and I go back, you know, to 1982. He sees me, and we greet each other like old school chums. You know, I sit down, like, Bob, Mark, Bob, Mark, and go over and we <laughs> hug. And then we did something that in the Disney universe is a sin. I'm a reporter, right? He puts his arm around me, I put my arm around him, and we walk to the far side of the swimming pool away from all the Disney PR <laughs> folks. Uh -oh. So here's Bob Weiss, the executive vice president of Walt Disney Imagineering in charge of all this, having a conversation with a reporter from the Orange County Register, and there's nobody listening to it. <laughs> nobody protecting the, oh boy. <laughs> and you know, we're just having old, like old school yeah, chums yeah, getting yeah. together conversation. And after about 10 minutes, we look over and though there were other reporters there, you could see all the Disneyland people, there's like 20 of them, every pair of eyes is looking at us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're kind of in a semicircle. And we see this and we look at each other and go, what do you think? Is yeah, we ought to do something about that. So we walk back around the pool, arm in arm, and I swear to you, these 20 pairs of eyes were just tracking us the whole way. So we just got in the middle of the semicircle, and Bob goes, <laughs> I want to introduce you to Mark Eads. He's a reporter at the Orange County Register, my friend, and a former Disney Imagineer. And it was like a scene from The Incredible Hulk when the Hulk turns back to a human. You could just see all the water going off these people and just going back to normal. And they were like, instant sigh of relief. Here's a person who gets it. Yeah. And so what was ironic was a week later, Adam Townsend, who was the writer, got a call from John McClintock. And they'd been trying to convince Disney to let us go up inside the Matterhorn and take pictures and shoot video for the you know, that the 50th anniversary of the Matterhorn. And they'd said no. But out of the blue, John calls Adam and says, well, Adam, we've decided to let your photographer and videographer and you all go inside the Matterhorn to do a story in all this. And Adam was, to be honest, a little dumbfounded. And so he asked him, well, why are you letting us do this now? And this is a quote from Adam. And John said, let's just say having Mark Eads on the payroll is a good thing. Oh. And... That really broke the logjam, and what was nice was, I, you know, we worked out some relationships and who to call because sometimes when you want some answers from Disney, you're not exactly sure who to talk to, and they have the media relations folks and they have the public relations folks, and it's like, I think after about three months, I finally talked to Susie Brown, who was the director of media relations. She's now vice president there, and said, "Okay, here's my problem, Susie." I don't know who to talk to, so how about if I call you when I need something or when I want to pitch a story idea, and then you can figure out who I should be talking to if you're going to let me do it. And it really worked out nicely, and oh, I cool. did a lot of behind-the-scenes things that they'd never allowed anybody to do. I, I walked around the island of the Jungle Cruise doing a story about how the the ecology of the Jungle Cruise had changed. Yeah. You know, I went into the— That's a great story. I was shooting video in the roundhouse just— David Gill was my rep, and he just, oh, Mark, go. Have a good time. He just let me film There's everything. There's an element of trust because you, yeah. you understand. I, and my attitude was I'm not going to do like a lot of the blog sites were doing, trying to sneak stuff. If that was my story, that's what I did. If I saw something, I would ask about it. Yeah. But my attitude was my job is to show you some behind-the-scenes peaks. I would, I would. There was stuff I wouldn't show because I knew they didn't want it. And at the same time, part of it is, you know, I mean— 
there's some a couple of webs. There's one website in particular I used to write on once in a while because they're all negative all the time. Remember, going to the theme park is about having fun. <laughs> and if you if you're not enjoying yourself there, okay, complain about it. Don't go. Yeah, it's a business. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a business, and right. the business it's is selling fun. Park, yeah. If you're not having fun, don't go. If the business doesn't make money, it will change. But if it's doing well and it's fun, enjoy it. Yeah, you know? I, I've been, you know, the, all the in the period of time that you were working for the Orange County Register, a um, lot has changed in the area, in the city, in the uh, the theme yeah. park industry here in Southern California. All together, it just continues to have a trajectory. It's been through economic doldrums. It goes through uh, strikes. It goes through all those things. Um, what's the overarching view of where the um, industry is today and where it's going in the future? Well, I think it's going through some changes. Uh, uh, the biggest thing, obviously, Disney's building Star Wars land or Galaxy's Edge. Um, Harry Potter at Universal really was the next big fundamental shift because when they opened the magical world of Harry Potter in Florida, that got a lot of buzz going because now you were going into a land specific to one intellectual property, not just an attraction anymore. So where Star Tours immersed you once you entered the building, now it's going into a land. Now, there's a lot of people, fans, hardcore fans who hate that. Okay, they're entitled to that. But at the same time, we used to talk about that back in the 80s at Disney. Wouldn't it be cool if you were really just in a place that you could never go? And could we do it? We actually talked about having pirates invade New Orleans Square and take over New Orleans Square. Literally have pirate bazaars everywhere. That was one of the ideas at the time. And the whole immersive thing has really come full-fledged now. Um, when I went to Florida in 2017 and I went to see, you know, I'd seen the Harry Potter world out here when it opened, but I went to see the original one down there. And then I went to Diagon Alley and oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, it changes your mind it, about it what can really be It really said, okay, I am, once you go inside the alley, you really feel like you're someplace. And the Hogwarts Express was, you know, wow. Um, and I think in some ways the competition between Universal and Disney is, is Spurred a lot of this on. Yeah. You know, Cars Land at California Adventure was incredible. I saw Bob Weiss and Kathy Mangum, the executive producer, and Kevin Rafferty. Again, I've known all these people forever during the whole media shindig when they reopened it all up, right? And I was coming back at the end of the three-day marathon media, whatever. They're doing all this stuff. And... I come around the corner in front of the Ghirardelli ice cream place, and I see the three of them having some ice cream. It was a hot day. And they see me, and Bob goes, well, Mark, what do you think? And I'm known for not hiding my opinion. And I set my stuff down, and I go, you really want to know what I think? Bob looks at the other two, and he says, hang on. And they both take a serious lick of their ice cream cones, right? <laughs> okay, we're ready. <laughs> and I said, Bob, Kathy, Kevin... I think Cars Land and Radiator Springs Racers will do for California Adventure what New Orleans Square and Pirates of the Caribbean really did for Disneyland, really put it on the map. Yeah. And you yeah, almost transformed the experience of the park into a yeah, kind of another level. Yeah, yeah, instead of just being here's an area with a bunch of attraction, here is a land with yeah. characters and 
and by association, it's it's a yeah, it's, it's immersive. A, it's another level of theme park now. Yeah, it's the immersive experience that had been talked about, and I think that's where themed entertainment is headed. I think if you have um, attractions, et cetera, you probably, I mean, in some ways, Walt Disney did that when he had attractions in a frontier land and an adventure land and uh, a fantasy land and Tomorrowland. And the, the area had a theme, a, sort of a broad theme, and then you had attractions kind of within it. Yeah. But the lands were not based on an intellectual property. They were intellectual properties contained within the land. As a sidebar, I'll say, I get tired of people saying, well, they didn't use intellectual property. And they go, well, you know, just about other than the merry-go-round <laughs> and the vehicles on Main Street, yeah. all of the other attractions were based on a Disney movie or associated with one somehow. So I don't buy that argument. Um, but yeah, I think that's where it's headed. It's expanded out into um, family fun centers, et cetera, on a lesser scale. Some of them not so good. You're seeing a lot of people trying these virtual reality things. So I think it's tough to make that pay because the throughput's not very good yet. Um, I mean, when you can only do four people for a 15-minute thing, that's, you know, if you do the math, that's 16 people an hour. And if that thing costs you a quarter of a million dollars, it's going to take a long time to make your money back. Um, so I think, I think it's transitioning into something like that, but I think it still needs to find its way. Kind of like the news business is trying to figure out how to stay in business and in this social media era. Well, I'd be curious your thoughts. I mean, there's the Disney Universal, and then, of course, from a visitor fan, everyone's loving that uh, that uh, competitive rivalry and that capital uh, outspending. Uh, but <laughs> in terms of uh, the other regional parks, um, you know, in a way, it's almost to me, it almost feels like a different industry at some level. That kind of that regional theme park industry. Um, you know, I know Matt. We met. Who was a uh, former president of Disneyland and and uh, he went to I'm not sure chairman Cedar at Cedar Fair. You know, he had almost a differentiation between the theme park business versus amusement parks. And yeah, I what, think. What's your take on? Well, I think uh, there's always going to be a place to go where you can just ride the rides because that fits a certain niche market. And when you have a limited attendance windows at some of these places of right. you know four or five months, it's harder to spend a lot of money. That said, I think. Economies of scale can come in to provide a themed, immersive experience that doesn't cost as much. If you, it just, it's going to take the right kind of ideas from people within the business, like yourself and myself, saying, "Hey, why don't we do this?" And we could build ten of them for the cost of one of them, uh, and put them into the different places. And I think some of that's going to come in at some point. Well, we're seeing that with you know, like the Justice League attraction with the yeah, multiple it, rollouts at Six well, Flags Park. So you you know you don't have to spend so darn much money because you're going to be able to build ten of the ride vehicles versus yeah. one. So if you build one, it's enormously expensive. Now all you got to do is make a mold, and you make ten of them. It, it brings the, the amortized cost down. I also and think still letting that, people step into those IPs and those stories yeah. beyond just a themed facade or a name or a, a color scheme for a iron ride. And I, th I thought what uh, Knott's Berry Farm did with Ghost Town Alive the last few years was incredible. Just people playing roles in an area that's the old west. And they're actually taking it to Cedar Fair this summer. A oh, are they? Of, yeah, they, they've got an area they've kind Cedar of Park, Cedar, Cedar, Point. Cedar Point is taking it to there. Um, 
Yeah, it's almost like low tech, high touch, but yeah, using it's very low tech and it's, it's yeah. low tech on purpose. I well, mean, you know, it's funny because it goes back to the roots of that regional park model. I mean, back to the Six Flags Over Texas days where they would have simulated lynchings of Union warriors, <laughs> Union soldiers, <laughs> you know, crazy. by the Confederates. So, you know, it was living the, history parks. The Western you know? If you go to old Tucson, I think they still do a lot of things okay. like that. Uh, okay, corrals and yeah. So they have yeah, a shootout. We're, we're taking the family to Tombstone. For spring break. And no, yeah. Go to Old Tucson. Yeah. Um, we went there uh, several years ago on a vacation. And I said, we got to go here. And the kids were like, hey, it's a Western town. Yeah, but it, it'll be fun. And they'd had a dark ride at one time, and now it was a walkthrough. But what was interesting to the kids was just walking these Western streets, and they had a few people playing kind of roles, and they had stuntmen. And uh, one of the shows, uh, I got my daughter to be the volunteer, and of course, all the men are purposely trying to leer at her and getting her to kiss them and all this stuff. Oh and it was all done as a joke, though. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. all very tongue-in-cheek. And there was something about that low-tech immersion. But I think immersiveness is going to move forward. I think virtual reality is going to move forward. I think um, as these rectangular devices we all carry around yeah. start getting better and better, and as the technology the Wi-Fi networks get into the parks in a better way, whether they have to retrofit or as they build new. I think you're going to see either this or some, I would venture to say, I think you're going to see themed devices that are essentially these that they're going to maybe hand out eventually at some mm -hmm. place because that's the only way you can get through. I, it, yeah, there's elements uh, of that. I, that's part of what they're trying to do with Galaxy's Edge, but I don't know that the technology is there yet or if they want to have the hardware with it. But I think you're going to see that coming at some point. But the flip side of that is at what cost? Um, it is getting expensive to go to Disneyland. I, I know it's cheaper to go to the parks overseas, but it's getting expensive. And at a certain point in any household budget, that takes a toll. I'm not saying people are entitled to go, but that to me is a business opportunity for the other places. If yeah, you can right. offer a almost Disney or Universal-like experience and it doesn't cost a hundred and some odd dollars per person to go, it costs more like 40 bucks, okay. You can well, it's almost it seems like that's the niche that both Six Flags Cedar Fair has found that yeah. It, yeah. you don't just have to focus on the, the adrenaline junkie teenage crowd. And I'll, ha I'll give you another prediction. What do you think shopping malls are gonna become? Yeah. I think at some point they're, they're struggling but there's a lot of land with a lot of buildings. And at some point, you know, there's been attempts at it in the past. It was kind of the, sh the schlocky simulator 3D things that they did in Dave and Buster's and things like that. And people are trying to do it with the virtual reality. We, we literally just presented a master pl plan for a mall redevelopment yeah. last week that yeah. basically gave, gave up the ghost of retail yeah. and transformed it into a food and beverage and entertainment. And you're going to have some retail, but it's got to relate to what it is you're doing there. Because otherwise, I, I, I mean, I'm buying deodorant for my wife and daughter online. I mean, what do I want to go to a store for? <laughs> if I need more jeans, you're I going there for what you can't experience yeah, and what you can't what get you can't at get. Walmart or Amazon. The, you know, the only yeah, things right. we go out to buy anymore, frankly, are groceries that are, are perishable. So, you know, your milk, bread and veggies and things like that. 
Uh, and there's something about the, you know, speaking of going grocery shopping, like going to Trader Joe's, you actually feel like a human going to Trader Joe's because there's this interactivity that's yeah. uh, unusual to uh, grocery stores. So, I mean, they even. It's, it's <laughs> getting that way at a lot of fast food places. I was, I went to the McDonald's down the street here and I went up to the counter to order and said, no, you have to do it over here. And they showed me how they want you to do it yeah. with their big screen. It's like. Really? You're kicking me out. <laughs> You're kicking the human out. So, well, yeah. Yeah. The well, Mark, I'm, lost. Uh, I hope <laughs> not. I hope not. Well, uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on the uh, Themed Attraction podcast. Um, I, I, I just enjoyed the friendship that we've built and hanging out and doing uh, stuff you. together. You've been a great mentor, to even to me, um, pushing I'm me. St- I'm still waiting for that invite for the world famous Eads porch. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> the world famous Eads front porch. I never know when I'm going to open it. Of course, we've had a lot of rain lately, but uh, <laughs> if we get into some nice weather, uh, it'll probably be open. And the nice thing is, when it gets warm, it's easier to stay out there in the evenings. Uh, it's nice. good. Well, I'm saving up for my annual pass. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no admission. Parking is free. Good luck. We're on a cul-de-sac. If you can find it. I will give you a bag of peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't beat that. Thanks, Mark. Uh, any last words? Uh, again, just thanks for the friendship and the, and the, the journey together, Mark. And, and we're also um, excited at some of the future creative endeavors that uh, we're, we're looking to uh, locate. Uh, Maybe I can be involved. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Are we going to have the uh, interview right here on, on the podcast? Or, or Oh, I suppose we should save that for yeah. another well, time. <laughs> the, the NDA is already signed. Uh, yeah, we've already signed. had a bit of an interview. Okay, excellent, excellent, <laughs> excellent. I, I'm just not privy. Well, guys, thank you so much for today. Um, back to you in the studio, Fred. <laughs> Well, that's it. I get a total kick out of Mark. Mark is a hilarious guy, and he just he has a whole lot of stories to tell, a whole lot to share, a lot of experience in history with both parks uh, here in Southern California and all around the world. Um, it just bubbles up out of him. Well, he's got such uh, just a unique perspective, you know, coming uh, out of that uh, that era of Imagineering uh, and. Uh, and, and then being able to step back and looking at the industry kind of uh, from a holistic perspective. Yeah. So so much different than a typical travel writer, yeah. uh, you know, ever would, you know, at a local journalism uh, out, output. And I know that he's just still invited back regularly because of that unique experience. Hey, I've built rides. Now I write about rides. Um, he's always invited back to help to share that story. So really great to be with Mark today. Well, it looks like the compass is pointing back to the dock. Should we go? What do you say? Let's roll. All right. Until next time. Thanks a lot, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. You know, we can't thank you enough for listening to our show. It means so much to us. Will you leave us a review on iTunes Podcasts and share the show with your friends? We'd really appreciate it. We want to thank our guest, Mark Eads. Follow Mark on his blog, markeads.com. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com, an insider's look at theme park design by theme park designers. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at Themed Attraction. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. 
Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Mel, Barry has a knack for knowing the right thing to wear for the right occasion. One thing he knows for sure is to never wear yellow at a gorilla party. They find it very appealing. Thanks for listening, folks.